Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. I am Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Thank you for joining us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Welcome. Thank you for being here, Lucas. I I feel like it's been a while, even though it's been only about a week, but it, it's good to be behind the mic again, chatting with you about theology. Um, and so here we are on a, on a beautiful Sunday when we're sitting down to record this. It is currently like 45 degrees and sunny, which is a great change of pace from what it was yesterday when it was like 32 and basically a blizzard. Uh, it's been like very temperamental here. It's funny, we didn't have any snow for Christmas but sure, in the beginning of April, let's have some crazy blizzards. I don't. It's like God has a great sense of humor, right? He's like, I, <laughs> you expected snow in December, you didn't get any, but now when it's starting to actually get nice, you're gonna get hit with some snow. I don't know. That's not what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about about Carl Bart. Uh, this is gonna be a very interesting episode, as every single one of our episodes are. We 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 only record interesting episodes, obviously. Uh, but this is. I think extra interesting because our most downloaded episode of all time is our Karl Barth Christian of History, which is really funny to me because it it was like a random episode that I think you did. You you did the like the presentation of of Karl Barth and his life and his work, um, and it was right at the 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 forefront of our very first Heresy Month. So I think it was like October second of twenty twenty or something like that. Um, but it's, it's wild to me that that continually gets downloads more than anything else. I mean, if you it, we, I can go back and look at, like, over the last 30 days, all of our episodes, like, how many times they've been listened to. And no matter what point in time you do that, like, whether it was a month ago, two months ago, or six months from now, Carl Bart's Christian of History is always going to have listens and downloads. And it's always going to be number one, unless... You guys make this one the new number one, which who knows? I just have to imagine that people are like interested in Bart, and so they go onto a podcast player, type in Carl Bart, and our episode maybe is one of the very first one that very first ones that comes up. I don't, I don't really know what the attraction is, uh, but Lucas, why don't you tell us specifically what we're talking about today? Because this isn't a Christians of History. We're not trying to necessarily reiterate anything that we said in that episode. This is a distinct episode. So what are we talking about? Yeah. So. Uh, first off, I, I, I will, again, like I did last week, apologize for my continued nasally allergy voice, because while you're dealing with blizzards, I'm dealing with pollen, um, which is just super fun, but it is sunny and nice. Bless so. the Lord for just weird seasonal things. Yeah, but uh, we are revisiting Bart from his, the point of view of something he actually wrote something that he actually produced theologically not uh not a a biographical look at him not so much him as a person but a piece of his work as a theologian so we are going to be i guess i'll say basing our discussion on a section from uh section four volume one or part part four volume one of his church dogmatics which is his magnum opus it's something like 13 volumes, 9,000 words, and it was unfinished. Um, His big, humongous, uh, dense, not just in terms of 
like small print, but also in terms of the sorts of uh, ways that he expresses his ideas. Uh, as I learned, being originally assigned this article as a as an assignment, which is how I found it. Uh, very, very, uh, in some ways, difficult to read and difficult to parse. Um, just the way that he writes, and uh, also the 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 sorts of ideas he chooses to to deal with. Um, he doesn't necessarily make super clear all the time. But uh, this is a little section uh, called The Judge Judged in Our Place. It's, it's like I said, from part four, book one of Dogmatics, which is um, the section on, or the first part of the section on the Doctrine of Reconciliation. So this is all about, basically, you know, in, in Bart's words, uh, he's asking, what is it that takes place when the Son of God becomes flesh of our flesh? Why did Jesus become incarnate as a human being? And what does that mean? What happened? What what takes place? And, and that's sort of the, the basic overarching question he's answering. So like I say, we're going to kind of base our discussion on this article more than sort of talk our way through it, just because it would be too long to, to do that. And especially if you don't have it in front of you, um, it, it wouldn't really be, I don't think, as uh, enjoyable of a conversation. But hopefully this serves as a decent sort of like uh, glimpse into something relatively substantial coming from Bart theologically, not just the, the overarching sort of things that come from his reputation and his place in history and all that kind of stuff, but a little bit of a, of a look um, into some of the ideas that, that he wrote about, at least, you know, in one very small sliver of his writings. So that's the overarching question. What is, it that takes, what is it that takes place when the Son of God becomes flesh of our flesh? And he goes about it in a very detailed and systematic way. Um, but there are some really interesting and I think potentially, um, oh, what's a good word? Like unique maybe or jarring maybe even uh, ways that he articulates this idea of reconciliation and this idea of Christ being uh, made man and in that way taking our place, right? So um, I think to start, I'll just see if there's anything like right off the bat that you want to say after your perusal of this article or anywhere you want to take us quotes or ideas to, to sort of start off. Um, and if not, that's that's, that's fine. I'll, I, I can take us somewhere, but uh, I want to see if there's anything that that's like burning on your mind and heart. Yeah. At this moment. I mean, for me, when I when I hear the name Carl Bart, I know that there's a little bit of uh, maybe disagreement on how to how to use him, how to read him. Um, you know, he comes from a different theological perspective than I think most of the circles that I find myself in. And so when you approach somebody like that, when you approach somebody that maybe you don't agree with on a lot of things or maybe you find, like you said, maybe unique or jarring or weird uh, I think it's good to be charitable. That was at least how I tried to enter this this article that you had sent. Um, I wanted to sort of disassociate maybe even like prior assumptions that I had. I think that's just like a good practice when you're approaching somebody. Not I think regardless of who you're reading, whether it's John Piper, Carl Bart, or somebody in between, uh, what you should do is read them um with the idea in your mind that I'm not going to agree with everything that I read, but I'm also not going to disagree 
with everything that I read. I think I think too often people are guilty of like when they read somebody that they like, they just wholesale agree with everything that is said. Um, and then on on the other side, when they when they think that they might disagree with somebody, they find it very difficult to find common ground. Uh, so to sort of balance out in in the middle somewhere of of being able to um, critically and analytically read something like this um, as charitably as possible. So I, that that wasn't necessarily about this article specifically. It's more just a general statement about like how we read. Uh, when we read something, we, we should just be a little bit more critical and also a little bit more charitable. So that's all I'll say as we as we approach the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the first the first thing the first like theme I want to hit on is the thing that really hit me the most in reading this, um, which is something that I well, I sus- I haven't told you about this. I suspect we'll be doing an episode on at some point because it's just this idea that kind of keeps coming up in all these different ways in my head and. And I, I, I'm noticing it pop up in different things I'm reading for class, reading on my own, podcasts, all that kind of stuff. So it, it, it's one of those things that's just kind of like slowly taking shape in the back of my mind and, and, and it kind of sticks out in a, in a specific way here. Is this this complete, and this is something that if, if you, I don't remember if, this is, if, if we say this in our Christians of History on him, but I feel like this is one of those sort of like things about Bart that he kind of like gets attached to him as a reputation. Um, or at least it, I've heard it in a lot of places or, or at least in more than one place is this idea that, that for him, you know, Bart is, is sort of radically Christocentric that, that when, when doing theology for him, everything sort of is about and stems from and points back to, and is interpreted through the lens specifically of Jesus Christ who he is, what he did, what he does, how he relates to the world and to us. And, and that's sort of like the grid, um, or at least a major grid of how Bart does theology. And um, zooming out from Bart, I just think that this sort of, um, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I think that this phrase uh, Augustine used in reference to uh, scripture and, and interpreting scripture specifically, but this totus, totus Christus, you know, everything Christ the whole Christ Christ is everything this idea I find very compelling and 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 I think that it is um it it seems really simple uh oh I mean I I mean it is simple but like it seems it seems very familiar to me in terms of ways that I sort of see and hear um uh like spiritual reflection or theological reflection being done um, growing up, but I think that it has some really profound implications that sort of shines a light on the area. If, if you take that as a as a priority, that that Christ is the center of of all that I am and think and do and say when it comes to the faith and when it comes to understanding God, reading the Bible, doing theology. Um, for me, I I, it doesn't seem like that big a shift. And then when I start thinking, when I start reading, when I start encountering areas of my theology, it's like a big spotlight is put on those areas where I'm not actually uh, centering and building everything on Christ, right? It might, it might be about Christ or it might relate to him, but it's not necessarily like Christ is everything. And, and so that's a little abstract and vague, but... Um, if you want to follow along, this is on the right column of page five of our PDF that we have. But um, 
Uh, I'll just read a little a little section and then we can chat about it. Um, Karl Barth writes, The word became flesh, that there might be the judgment of sin in the flesh and the resurrection of the flesh. So he's talking about why, you know, in this case specifically, like, why did God become man? There, there's there's something specific about the flesh, the, like the literal human uh, material that, that we are, right? We must be careful not to describe this event, the coming of Jesus Christ in place of us sinners, this exchange between the divine and our false human, uh, human position as an exchange only in appearance, as a kind of dressing up or masquerade in, in view of the sinlessness of Christ. So we can't say, okay, G- Jesus became a man like us, but he, w- he wasn't a sinner. He didn't have sin. So he kind of became a man like us. He kind of looked like us, or it was sort of like us, or it was similar to us, but it was different. Bart is saying, no, we, we can't say that it was just an appearance or a masquerade, which I really like that imagery. It's very like uh, sort of tangible imagery, right? He continues, if anything is in bitter earnest, it is the fact that God himself in his eternal purity and holiness has in the sinless man, Jesus Christ, taken up our evil case in such a way that he willed to make it and has in fact made it his own. So the reason this is significant to me, the reason that I, this was one of my favorite sections of the whole thing is if we think about what that means, if we want to say that Jesus really did become truly human, which if you're, if you've been around the show, you've been not surprised to learn that it's that that's something that we are interested in affirming. Um, you know, if you, if you say the creeds, you, you confess that if, if you know, I would argue if you read, read the gospels, you, and, and the rest of the scriptures, you will encounter that idea. And, uh, we, we do want to say that. And what that means, we have to, we have to follow it to its conclusion. And this is one thing I like about Bart is he, it, not every place I necessarily agree, but, but he, he says things that seem like they're maybe a little too far sometimes because he's saying the like he's saying the truth that the doctrines he's affirming sort of demands. So for example, the word became flesh dwelt among us. The, the thing that might sound like a stepping over a line, that's sort of a truth that is demanded by that doctrine is that God, like everything we want to say about God, the Holy Trinity, perfect, holy, uh, separate from sin, creator, redeemer, um, you know, all-powerful, almighty, ancient of days, like all these, all of these transcendent things that, that are necessitated whenever we say the word God. Um, that God in Jesus Christ, who was sinless, Bart isn't denying that, uh, made our sin his own in fact, not in appearance, right? And like, Again, this, this this is one of those things that it seems kind of subtle, but it, it's potentially, and maybe I'm projecting onto onto other people, you know, just how how uh, significant this is. But like, there's there's a there, there's a there's a simple truth that that I don't think any you know Orthodox Christian uh, and even many unorthodox Christians would would affirm in that. And then there's something there's an implication underneath that I think really rocks a lot of our assumptions. 
about Jesus or about God, about about sin and about the nature of humanity. Because we're saying like, God made our sin. You know, when we say with Paul that he who knew no sin became sin for us, we're saying something that like shouldn't be possible. That that doesn't really make any sense if you think about it. But it's true, and and, and we can fully have confidence that it's true because that's what God has revealed to us. Um, that when we look at Christ, we see God not because he is a sinner. That's that's not true. But we see God taking into himself by being born of a virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit, taking, you know, same same flesh as ours. He's taking all of our sin into himself, into his being. And he's living as a, a, sinlessly as a man under the curse of sin. You know, we might, we might want to say he's not a sinful man the way that I am or that any of us are, but he... He, he did live a, a human life in a sinful world with, with sinful flesh in this, you know, qualified sense of real human flesh that gets sick and hungry and tired and, and uh, is subject to, you know, the pains and the sufferings of the world as a result of sin, right? Um, and I just think that's huge, you know, and, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to like, just start repeating myself, but I just think it's, it's, it's this, this very powerful and humbling realization of the, the depths of what the incarnation means as far as the love of God and the forgiveness of God to, to, to make that, you know, make our evil case his own, the way that Bart says it. And I just think that's such an important theme to sort of harp on. And I think that it's it's potentially really important in certain strands today that that we we tend to think very legalistically or we tend to think very moralistically, and we're we're looking to Jesus to be our great moral teacher to teach us the right kinds of um, ways that we can implement different uh, uh, justice in different areas in our in our social and political and personal lives, or we're looking to the person who, you know, can kind of be our slot machine that when we screw up, you know, we can we can hope that he's going to, you know, still care enough about us to fill in the gaps. But but both of those extremes are, are, are wrong, are wrong-headed when we think about, um, first and foremost, the person of Christ and what it is that the word becoming flesh means. So I don't know if you have, if you have, if you, have you know, thoughts that, that, uh, that come up or, or that you want to say sort of in response to that. No, that was that was really good. I when I was reading that section, I too was drawn to it. Um, that language, like as I read it, did feel a little bit like strange at first. But the more that I thought about it, the more that I was like, yeah, that 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 is the reality of what happened. And I think something that we're guilty of too often, especially when we have familiarity, is we get a little bit too like comfortable almost, or um, I don't know, maybe we things sort of slip out of mind. I'm I'm even thinking of like people who are married. Like it's really easy when you just like live with somebody and you you know them um, to sort of like just get comfortable, get complacent. You're not really like active or um, in pursuit or anything. Um, and, a, and a similar thing can be said of theology too, is we, we can we can be so familiar with the incarnation or we can be, become so familiar with language about the incarnation, about the resurrection, that we sort of forget the realities that undergird them, like that, that, they, that we forget their substance even. 
Uh, and it's really, I think it's, uh, I didn't realize this until this moment, but this, this article in its entirety feels very appropriate for the season that we are in. As we approach, uh, you know, Easter, as we approach Resurrection Sunday, when we reflect upon the realities of the incarnation, obviously we would have celebrated that a few, a few months ago in, uh, during Christmas time. Uh, but as we think about the the life of our Lord, the, the, the sinless life that he lived in our place, um, I don't know. I think we would do well to, to actually think about the implications of those words that, that Christ lived a sinless life in our place. Cause we, we could say that we, we could say that from, uh, from a, from a pulpit on a Sunday morning and we can mean it. Uh, but the ears that are hearing it might not have any, anything to grasp onto because they, the, the, the categories aren't there. Maybe, you know, for somebody sitting in a pew who's like, man, okay. So God became a man. I don't know what that means, but that sounds interesting. Uh, he, he lived a sinless life uh, and in my place so that I could take his righteousness. Like those are just like on the surface categories that like don't necessarily make sense. And so what I like about Bart here, like you've said, is that he, he, he goes into the depths in such a way that um, he is drawing out many of the, I guess, many, many, many of the real implications of, of what these doctrines mean. Um, I don't know. I, th- I found it really, really cool and, and unique. So that, that's sort of, I guess, where, what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, and then I, I've just got one other, like, big section I want to go to. Not not to, you know, obviously we'll, we'll, we can keep talking as long as we want because it's our podcast. But there's, 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 there's like, you know, outside of reading the entire thing and, and then talking about it in a classroom setting for an hour like I've got to do. Um, it's it's tough to systematically go through something this long. Um, for, you know, for those of you listening, this is like a like a 21-page PDF, and each PDF has like two columns of text, like or each page has two columns. So like it's, this is a pretty lengthy section, and I was kind enough to uh, assign Jensen some, some seminary homework, even though he uh, isn't paying for the credits. But... Um, anyway, so the, the other thing is sort of, is, is sort of a, another, um, like the, the flip side of, of that reality where we kind of talked about like looking at it from the perspective of God being, you know, f- sort of the God, the God to man direction. Like we're looking at God actually like taking up our sinful condition. And the flip side of that is when we, when we look at Jesus on the cross, right. And not just the cross, his whole life, um, from the big things to the small things like this, this principle is still applies, but I think it's most, you know, powerful when we're talking about the passion and and the crucifixion. Um, but, but when we look at it from the, we're seeing this man suffering and dying, that man is God, right? Like, and, and there's this, um, another small section I'll read. The mystery of this passion, of the torture, crucifixion, and death of this one Jew which took place at that place and time at the hands of the Romans is to be found in the person and mission of the one who suffered there and was crucified and died. The mystery is in the person who's there, right? His, his person. It is the eternal God himself who, was giving, who has given himself in his son to be man and as man to take upon himself this human passion. His mission is... It is the judge who in this passion takes the place of those who ought to be judged, who in this passion allows himself to be judged in their place. It is not, therefore, 
merely that God rules in and over this human occurrence simply as creator and Lord. He does this, but he does more. He gives himself to be the humanly acting and suffering person in this occurrence. And uh, I don't remember if it was in in this uh, article or a different one, but there, there's another place where he talks about, like, other people have suffered probably more than Jesus did. Like, it's not like, oh, Jesus's passion has meaning for me because it was, it was such unimaginable pain and suffering that it just completely, you know, transcends all the pain and suffering that, that I experience in my life. I mean, that might be true depending on how much pain and suffering you experience, but I mean, there are plenty of other people who got crucified. There were two others who got crucified with him, let alone the countless martyrs who have been put through far worse physical tortures and, and, and extreme sufferings. But, but that's not the, it's not stacking up sufferings, right? It's not looking at the social historical location of Jesus of Nazareth in Palestine under the Roman Empire in the first century. You know, like, like it's, it's not sort of take, that's, that's not what gives the, the, the passion and the crucifixion its power. It's the fact that the one who is like, what matters is not what happened. What matters is who did it? Who did it happen to? And that, that who is God himself, like we were just saying. And that is, is you know, hopefully uh, just a reminder of truths that we already know. But it's also being reminded for sort of, sort of forces our, our heads to turn to the right perspective, right? We can get caught up and distracted by so many things, but it's like, what are we doing when we're celebrating the passion of our Lord is we're, we're looking at the God who came down, became flesh, took our flesh and took our place. Like he said, he was the judge and he was the one who was judged. And he, he is rightfully the judge. He is God. He is, he is perfect, sinless, the, the, the creator. But he's also rightfully the, the, the one being judged because he's completely man, human. And in that sense, stuck in a, in a um, sep- you know, he's, He's separated from God in his flesh in the sense that human beings are under our own natural state cut off from God. Not that Jesus was cut off from God, didn't have a relationship with the Father while he was on earth or anything like that. Um, but he takes up our flesh and by being the, the real flesh of a human and the real God who is sovereign over all of creation... He gives himself over to his own judgment on sin, and therefore, as Roman says, condemns sin in the flesh. Um, and it's this, it's this incredible Trinitarian reading, and not, I don't even, I mean, like, saying like something is a Trinitarian reading of the, the, the crucifixion, it, it makes it sound like that's just like an option among many, but I don't think it is an option. I don't, I don't think we can understand the crucifixion or the incarnation without the Trinity um, and recognizing the, the, the differentiation of persons and the union in their, in their nature. And we see that in Jesus being, as he, you know, as the title of this section, the, the judge judged in our place. Um, and he can really be the judge and really be in our place only because we're talking about the incarnate word of God, not 
super special man or a God who looks really close to us, right? Um, and I think that that is just, that, that these, these two sections really just kind of grabbed my attention. Um, and like I said at the beginning, kind of in this, this, this overall sort of like general theme of like, it, it's all Jesus. Like it, everything just comes back to, to, to directly to him. And, and like, he is the key to understanding everything that we want to say about our salvation about our need for salvation, about our history, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it, it's all him, you know? It's, yeah. It's, yeah. No, that's good. And uh, I don't know. It's just something that, it, it's weird, you know, because I, I, don't, I, I don't think Bart's a very good writer. Um, <laughs> this, is, this was my favorite thing of his that we read in, in my course that I'm taking. And uh, it... I, I, I don't really like reading him very much. Yeah. Um, He's definitely and, not for, like, your average lay person to just, like, pick up a copy and try to read. Yeah. there he, He's got some stuff that is, that is like, written that way. It's not this. And he's also screwy on some things. And he's got some just ideas that, even if I like them, they're, they're funky. They're weird, yeah. like we said. But it's weird because more so than, than almost anything else that I've read at seminary... This article, as I was sort of, quote unquote, working through the theology, it really did lead me in my heart in, in some small way to doxology, to that place of worship mm. and reflecting on yeah. this is like <laughs> what he is saying does, like I said, it grabs our head. You know, we're, we're up in the clouds or we're down here on the dirt. It kind of grabs our, our head. And like, like when you got like a little kid and you're trying to get him to like look at something, you know, um, like kind of like grabs us out of our own where we're at and just points us at the thing that we need to be paying attention to, which is Christ, which is Jesus and, and who he is and what he's done. And I mean, that's what it's all about. You know, whatever you want to say about the rest of Bart's theology, his writing, what he believed or didn't believe, like, which there's lots to say. And apparently you guys really are interested <laughs> as we, as we said, even when we're not even talking about it, it's got Carl Bart in the title. It's, it's a, uh, it's a you know hot commodity, so maybe this one will be too. But but whatever you want to say about it, or however however you feel about him, his method, whatever, um, at least here, you know, on this point, I think he does a really good job of directing his theology towards its proper end, which is the worship of the Trinity, mm. um, which is really cool. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Well, I mean. There's not much else I want to say. Like you mentioned already, this is a very long article. It's not like we went, we're we going to go through systematically. Um, I'll just comment on, just in case maybe, I guess if you're interested, let us know. We can always send you a link. Uh, but there was a little bit, like maybe halfway through, where he talks about the spirit driving him into the wilderness. I felt like that part was really interesting because he explores some of the similarities and differences between the, um, as he calls them, the evangelists. But the different gospels and how they recount that and what it actually means. Um, I thought it was interesting that he said on the old view, the wilderness was a place which like the sea had a close affinity with the underworld, a place which belonged in a particular, a particular sense to demons. Uh, I mean, we could have a whole episode on that, like going, trying to plumb the depths of uh, the wilderness or the sea. That's something I've been thinking about recently because I went down a YouTube rabbit 
rabbit hole. Uh, I was watching these like deep sea videos and just in absolute terror. I like never want to cross an ocean on a boat. I'm totally fine looking at it from ashore. Um, but man, the power and majesty of the God who created those things. But anyway, that's completely tangential, but maybe worth an, a conversation in a different episode. But without any further ado, unless you've got something you want to say, we'll, uh, we'll close it out with a word of prayer. This comes from Psalm 32 in the CSB translation, which says the joy of forgiveness. So this is a Psalm of David. And it goes, starting in verse one, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sins. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and show you the way to go with my eye on you. I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding uh, that must be controlled with bit and brittle or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Amen. Man, Bible. It's good. You should read it. Well, thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter at Doxology Podcast, or as always, email us at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions you got for us, questions about about uh, today's episode, any other episode, and also especially future episode ideas. We love hearing from you. We love hearing from you no matter what you have to say, but we also really like when we're able to sort of, you know, uh, later on interact in an episode with with an idea that you guys want to hear. So uh, please shoot us an email, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. (coughs) Excuse me. And we will see you next time.